Welcome. It's time for the second of our Rosebud Christmas Crackers. These are two special surprise shows in the run-up to our Christmas special program that's released on Friday. Let's get ready to pull the second Christmas cracker. All hold hands now. Make sure you give it a really good tug and let's find out who's inside. Oh, it's someone very special. Our guest is Patricia Outram. You may not know the name, but you'll want to hear the story. She's a centenarian who was involved in critical code-breaking work during World War II. Every now and then on Rosebud, we're going to introduce you to a guest who isn't famous in the obvious celebrity sense of the word, but who is interesting because they've led a fascinating life. Patricia Outram is the first of these people. She was born, literally, 100 years ago. She grew up in Lancashire, she learned German from the family's Austrian cook, and it was this skill which led her to get a job as part of the Y service run out of Bletchley Park when the Second World War started back in 1939. She signed the Official Secrets Act and didn't even tell her family the nature of her work. Her main job was interception, listening into the shipping broadcasts of the German fleet. In recognition of her services, Pat won the Légion d'honneur, the highest French award of merit. She now lives in Chiswick, West London, and very kindly invited me into her home for this conversation, which I think you're going to love. Well, Pat, before I begin, I must say the first thing I noticed when I came into your room on the mantelpiece was a card featuring the king and the queen. It really happens. People, when they become 100, do get a message from the king and the queen. Were you surprised? Well, I was delighted. I wasn't entirely surprised because I had heard that the king did send the card. But when it actually came, you know, you don't often hear from the king and it was rather exciting. And not... Many people have a 100th birthday. You were born on the 19th of June, 1923. I was, yes. More than a century ago. Oh, my goodness. And I want to ask you, if you can, to try to recall your very first memory, the first thing that you can see in your mind's eye. Well, I think it's probably my mother taking me for a walk in my pram, as she did, and uh, she started to go down a hill in our village and the pram ran away and we were going flying down this hill and my mother said, isn't this fun, Pat? And I was old enough to say, not at all, it isn't fun. <laughs> well, when would this have been? Who was your mother? What was this village? Well, I was born in June 1923, so I suppose it was 1925, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, my mother had been Dorothy Daniel, but she married someone called Carrie Outram, and I was their first child, arrived a year later, and we lived in North Lancashire. And what do you remember as a little girl of, of life in Lancashire? What was it like? Well... We lived in my grandfather's house, and it was quite a big house. It had 11 bedrooms, mm. but then he had four sons and quite a big staff. And uh, 
there were always lots of people around, lots of animals, dogs, and my father had a horse called Sandy. We had a pony when we were old enough. Um, there was also a home farm, which produced very nice fresh milk, only unfortunately I got bovine TB, but then those days children did. This is from drinking the milk, you got yes. this? Gosh, yes. what's the effect of bovine TB? Um, well, I never minded because I had to stay in bed because I had a temperature. My mother, who read aloud very well, would come and read books to me. And when I recovered, at least one time, we had a nice holiday in Devon for me to recuperate. In this large house of your grandfather's, there were staff. There, what, what sort of staff were there? Well, there was always a cook and a kitchen maid. Um, and um, one of the kitchen maids ran away, but I think she was brought back. Um, and um, a housemaid called Ellen and a parlour maid called Eva and uh, an outside man who drove cars and looked after our pony and so on, called Tommy Townsend. So there was lots of people around. And they were very much part of the family? Um, yes, they were, really, yes, because they lived in various sort of cottages and um, around close to the house. And did you have a nanny? Oh, yes, we did. I had a nanny who we knew as Kent Nanny, who was very large and very kind. Um, my sister what came... What did you call her? Kent? We called her Kent Nanny because what? she came from a village called Smarden in Kent. Oh, yes. And then my young brother came along and he had Nana, who came from Glasgow. He developed quite a Glasgow accent. He used to say, I'm waiting on you, I'm waiting on you. And when he was about four. So in the 1920s, you're this little girl, very much the servants, the staff of the house, are very much part and parcel of your life. Yeah. Do you see much of your parents and grandparents? Well, my father and grandfather were in the cotton spinning business and they went off to their mill or the Cotton Exchange in Manchester. So we didn't see much of them on weekdays, but they were around at weekends. But of course my mother was there all the time. And what sort of person was your father, first of all? What kind of man was he? Well, he was quite a sort of all-rounder because he had a good tenor voice and he used to sing in amateur productions. Um, I gathered he was a good shot, so he used to get asked to shoot, and he liked fishing too. He was an out-of-doors man, I would say. And your mother was a housewife and a mother? She was, but she was one of the first girls in our town who could drive, mm -hmm. and uh, she was rather the sort of hub of the family. These are the days, of course, when people could drive without taking any driving test. If you could drive, you just drove. I think you could, couldn't you? Yes. Can you remember the first family car that you were in? I think it was a Crossley. And, um, yes, I used to sit on Nanny's knee in the passenger seat and my mother drove it. And before you went to school, how did you entertain yourself? Well, um, my sister Jean was two years younger 
And we used to have what we called pretends. And we would pretend we were explorers or whatever it was and play these games all over the garden. Did you read? Were you an early reader? I could read just before I was five. Yes. And do you remember the, the sort of books you enjoyed when you were a little girl? Well, I insisted on reading Walter Scott when I was about five or six. Gosh. And everybody said, it's too old for you. It's, I mean, can I say it? At 56, it's pretty complicated. At five <laughs> or six. But really? I was determined to read it. Things so, like Ivanhoe. Yes. These were exciting adventures to you. Yes. Um, so I did manage to read Walter Scott. But, of course, we had all the children's books like Beatrice Potter and because mm. um, this is before Enid Blyton. Yes. So Beatrix Potter, you remember? Beatrix Potter, I remember. Wind in the Willows, you might have read that. We read Wind in the Willows. Can you remember the food, the first meals that you remember enjoying? Well, I was allowed to come down for Sunday lunch. We had other meals in the nursery. That was sort of a great privilege, really. So normally you ate with Nanny Kent... Uh, and one of the parlour maids would bring up a tray That's of food. It. And what sort of food, what was nursery food in the 1920s? Um, oh, what did we have? Um, I suppose we had things like mince and, and puddings. I know my mother discovered the housemaid scraping up food that she happened to have dropped on the back stairs. And she said, what are you going to do with that? She said she was taking it up to the nursery. <laughs> and the Sunday lunch that you came down from the nursery to have with the rest of the family, was that quite a, a formal lunch? Uh, I suppose it was, really, because if there was a visiting preacher or anyone, they were invited to lunch. And I do remember one visiting clergyman who I was brought down to have lunch with, with the family. And he started making animal noises like moo, moo, ba-ba. And I very carefully took no notice at all because I thought, you know. Um, and afterwards, my mother said, poor Mr. So-and-so, he was trying to amuse you and you just didn't react at all. I said, well, I thought there was something wrong with him. And it was only polite not to take any notice. Oh, wonderful. Bless his heart. There was a, do you remember, there was a, a man who did animal impressions on the radio? Yes. I'm trying to remember what he was called. Percy, Percy per Edwards. Yes, it was he, Percy Edwards, wasn't he, it? Yes, he did bird impressions. He did birds, And yes. I, I, I phoned him, oh, this is about 50 years ago, to interview him and spoke to his wife, and I said, I'm, I've arranged to speak to your husband, Mr. Edwards, uh, to, to do this interview. And uh, is he there? And she turned away from the telephone and went... <laughs> and then he came on the phone and said, oh, hello, you're the person about the interview, aren't you? And they'd been able to, he and his wife could communicate through bird sounds. Goodness. So maybe your preacher was somebody who felt he was going to be on the same wavelength as you by entertaining you with his yes. animal impressions. He was obviously trying to be entertaining. And, and were you taught by your parents, don't speak until you're spoken to him? And was it quite, was it a formal childhood in that sense? I don't remember them saying that. Um, no, I don't think we were sort of controlled in that way. I think if we wanted to say something, we said it. Good. And you were, a, were you a well-behaved little girl? I suspect you were. I think I was, yeah. rather. Yes. 
because I had a, a younger sister and then later a younger brother. So I was supposed to behave rather responsibly. Well, rather like Elizabeth II, who all were born in the 1920s, with her younger sister. Elizabeth II was the, the more formal, serious one, and the younger sister was the more flibbity-jibbity, naughty one. Was that the same with you and your sister? Well, I think I was the more sort of sedate one and trying to be like older people. And Jean was much more adventurous and brave and, uh, and very good with animals, um, you know, whereas... I was more the one who went with my mother when she did calls on local ladies. And I used to be especially thrilled when the hostess said, would you like to see round the house? Which seems very strange now, but they used to do that. And I was up like a ferret, say, ready to rush round. And particularly if she had cupboards you could walk into with her dresses inside. So you love nosing into other people's houses? Yes, I just love going round people's houses. Well, it's a fun game to play, playing pretense with your sister and then nosing around the neighbours' houses. Yes. And when did you go to school? Did you go to school? I Not... had to wait till my brother was going to a prep school when he was eight, and they said then I could go to a boarding school. So you were educated at home by the, by the nannies, or did you have a governess? We started having governesses when I was five or six, and I used to share a governess with neighbours' children for quite a long time, until I went to school. So you were kept at home with the governesses until you were 14. Yes. Before we get to being sent away to boarding school, what were the, your favourite subjects? What were you being taught by the governesses? Well, I suppose history and English. Um, I was never terribly good at maths, but I don't think the governesses are very good at maths either. So um, I don't, didn't have any great talent that way. Were you still aware of, as you grew up, of the First World War? Were there echoes of that still? Very much, yes, because um, I had quite a lot of uncles, no aunts, um, and they'd been in, in the First War. My father was just old enough to be in, I think, the last year of the war. And people were talking about it a lot in the 1920s. And what were they saying? Um, well, things had got, obviously, a great deal more peaceful. Um, but they were talking, I suppose, about uh, Hitler by that time, because he was becoming you know, very uh, threatening, I suppose. Uncle Godfrey used to go to Germany for skiing and things like that and came back and told us he'd stayed in the same hotel with a, a General Goering. Um, and one day they had lobster on the menu and he said he'd like lobster. They said, I'm sorry, it's all the lobster's been reserved for General Goering and his uh, <laughs> party. So uh, we sort of heard little bits like that about Europe. So the time came for you, your brother was being sent away to his school, the time came for you to go to a boarding school. Why, was, why did you go to a boarding school? Because there were no schools nearby that your parents felt were suitable? Well, I think there's no reason I couldn't have gone to Lancaster Grammar School. But there were 
in those days, very anxious I shouldn't get a Lancashire accent. Oh. And I think they thought if I did go there, I would certainly pick up a Lancashire accent. And um, so when Bob went to his prep school, um, they had done a tour. They took me to look at several boarding schools. And there was one I wanted to go to very much in the south of England because they had a little theatre. And, of course, they put on their own plays. I thought, that is where I'd like to go. And they said, no, you're going to a boarding school now where Bob's school is, which was in Warwickshire. Well, they didn't have anything like that. Can you remember your first night at boarding school? The first night? Hmm, were you, I mean, it was the first time, I imagine, you'd been away from home on your own. Yes. Um, I th think I remember the first night. I do remember the first day in the form room and some of the girls were rather sort of wild and uh, lively and I do remember the first day there, one of them said, let's smash up the old antique furniture. <laughs> uh, you know, and I was terrified, actually. And uh, they didn't actually smash up anything. But you suddenly found yourself at St Trinian's. There yes. were sort of wild girls running around. Yes. And what was your ambition for yourself at this time, when you're in your early to mid-teens, and what was your parents' ambition for you? Um... When I left school, I was to go to a, a secretarial college. And you left at 16 or 17? Um, 16, I think. Mm -hmm. And I would do a secretarial course and become a secretary. Um, but um, I knew I was quite good at writing, and I really felt I would have rather liked to do something a bit more creative. But I did go on from school to a secretarial course. Which one? In, was it in London or...? The Triangle. And I think it was during the war, the early stages of the war, because it had been evacuated out to Buckinghamshire. Yeah, it would be, because you were 16 in 1939, so it would have been the beginning of the war. It was the beginning of the war, yes. Can you remember your first awareness that the war had begun? I mean, age 16, how much was it impacting on you? Yes, well, we were. We always had fishing holidays in Scotland in the summer, and we had to uh, come rushing back from one of these holidays because my father was in the territorial reserve. We used to go to a nearby farmhouse where they had a radio set, and obviously the things were getting very dark, so we went back in a hurry. Um, so I was at home when the war started. And can you remember listening to the broadcast? Can you remember mm. hearing Chamberlain announce that the war was going to happen? Yes, that now we were at war. And I sort of expected German bombers immediately, but they didn't come over North Lancashire, so not very much happened. So you went to the Secretarial College and carried on as normal. There was a war. You read about the war in the newspapers. You heard about it. But you were a girl with other 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds. You were all nice girls learning to type. Well, the Secretarial College, which had been in West London, evacuated itself out to Buckinghamshire. I think it was quite good of my mother to let me go to the south of England uh, when the war had started. But 
she did. And you stayed with other girls? You lodged with other girls, did you? We did, yes. I remember um, on one of the German bombing raids on Slough, or that area, they must have had unused bombers because they dropped them very close to our college. I remember the window bulging in as if it was made of plastic or something before it shattered in bits in my bedroom. It's the nearest I ever was to a bomb. And were you terrified? Yes. I was just astonished, I think. Mm. You know, I didn't realise windows could bend as if they're made of plastic. What happens when you leave the secretarial college? You're then 18 and ready to give war service. Yes, and I had a bit of trouble with glands that used to swell up in my neck, so I wasn't sure I'd be able to pass a medical. But I spent quite a lot of time, we lived in our grandfather's house, with his Austrian cook, and we talked German a lot. So when I applied to the Wrens, I put down conversational German as one of my qualifications. And they were looking for girls who could talk German uh, to do interception. Had it been a problem for the Austrian cook being Austrian? Yes, they had to, I think, report to the local policemen at intervals, but they were allowed to stay. So you applied for the Wrens um, with your conversational German and they were interested in you. Can you remember the interview? What happened? I went over to Liverpool um, to do a German test and it was a translation and um, it was on the subject of a... I think it was a little vixen and what uh, this little vixen did. Of course, I didn't know the German word for vixen I decided this was probably a wasp, so I <laughs> translated the whole thing in terms of it being a wasp. But I don't think conversational German should include vixen. No. I'm, I'm on your side totally. Well, did you pass the test? Did they want you? To my surprise, I passed the test. Wow. Hello, it's Giles here. And I'm very happy to tell you that this series of Rosebud is sponsored by one of my favourite hotels in the world, the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel on London's Park Lane. One thing for which the Grosvenor House Hotel is justifiably famous is its great room. This has hosted royal banquets, boxing matches, BAFTA award dinners, and was even the location for a Dua Lipa video featuring live horses. But during the Second World War, the great room was transformed. It was requisitioned by the War Office as a mess hall for U.S. Army officers. New American kitchens were installed, and 450 staff served up to 14,000 meals a day. The room is so big that there were over 1,000 officers at each sitting. In total, 5.5 million meals were served between 1943 and 1945. The Great Room is a piece of history, and well worth a visit when you come to the Grosvenor House Hotel, which I hope you will, because every single person who walks through the door at this hotel is treated as if they were royalty, or even as if they were an American president. And American presidents have stayed here. We're delighted that the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel are supporting this series of Rosebud. Do make sure you book with them next time you want a five-star experience in London town. 
So this was the beginning of your war service. You were in mm. uniform. You had a rank. Yes, we were all petty officers. Oh. If we had done the German training, um, and if you also learnt how to use Morse, uh, you could go up a rank to chief petty officer, which I did. Um, they had a, a sort of um, a Wrens station in the suburbs of London, but then I went up the Yorkshire coast because we could cover the Baltic, and uh, that was much more satisfactory. So where did you live when you were up there? It was all girls, I assume, all women, young women. It was all girls, and um, in the Yorkshire station, they'd taken over a small private hotel. It was right beside the sea, and we had a watch room with sets, radio sets, on which we could listen to the naval traffic in the Baltic. We sometimes picked up things like German tanks surrounding St. Petersburg and things like that. And you were writing down, were you, what you were hearing? Yes, so you were I mean, sitting there wearing headphones trying to decipher... We, head, we had a watch room, we wore yeah. headphones, we sat in front of radio sets, mm -hmm. we knew the frequencies that the German fleet used, and uh, we listened and wrote down whatever we heard. It could be ships talking to other ships, it could be bases talking to ships. And did, were you aware when you were finding out something that was useful, or you just recorded everything? I mean, can you remember what, in retrospect, was the most useful thing you discovered or you learnt, if you're allowed to tell me? I imagine when you joined up, you had to sign a piece of paper that was the Official Secrets Act. Oh, you did. And all penalties, like death. Um, seriously, know. like death. So you did take it very seriously. I mean, you were told you're now signing the Official Secrets Act. This is when you're 18, you're joining, you're mm. told you're going to be a petty officer, you're given a uniform, you're coming here, and please sign this. Yes. And, and what did they explain to you how serious this was? Well, they did. I mean, you couldn't tell your family what you were doing. You had sort of rather stupid cover stories to make people think you're listening to British radio because, you know, these stations which sort of taken over small hotels and things where we worked, um, they were bristling with radio masts and so anybody could have told. That something was, was happening. Something was happening. But we pretended it was British radio. And that you were listening to Arthur Askey. Sort of that, thing. That kind of thing. So you literally didn't tell your friends outside or your family what you were doing? No, nobody. Gosh. Well, thank mm. you for sharing this with us. You're, you're <laughs> released from it now, are you? Is there a sort of time? Well, of... I think we're quite friendly with the Germans. Oh, oh good, yes. So it's, it's OK now. Yes. Oh, good. Can you recall, I mean, the first time you felt, actually, this is worthwhile, I've learnt something that's important today? You had to go and fetch the officer if you picked up a German naval message. And the officer would have been a man, so you were all the, the girls doing the... No, she was a woman. Ah. She was a German-speaking ran officer. So they had to be in the watch room if you were getting German traffic. If it was code, went to Bletchley Park. And if it was plain language, it went to naval intelligence. And where did you go then next from North Yorkshire? I went to Lyme Regis. Mm -hmm. We could cover the Normandy coast. And then I think from there to Abbotscliffe, which was close to Dover. 
And where you, of course, you weren't aware, and reading diaries of the Second World War, you can tell that people, of course, didn't know what the outcome was going to be. You didn't know that we were going to ultimately win. Were you apprehensive? I think we assumed we would always win, but it seemed to be taking a long time, actually, to do it. Um, I don't remember ever having any doubt that we would win in the end. So were you, a, you were optimistic and quite positive? I mean, do you remember the war, in fact, as quite a happy time? Well, I do, because you were with a bunch of other girls, more or less your own age. You knew you were doing something essential. Um, and you were by the sea. So there were a lot of pluses. You mentioned Bletchley Park. Yes, well, of course, we didn't know it as Bletchley Park, but as Station X. Oh, that's rather a good name for it, Station yes, X. it was Station <laughs> X in the war. Might have been simpler to call it Bletchley Park. That would have been a little bit more secretive than Station X. That does suggest something's happening. Anyway, go it, on. It does, except you wouldn't know where it was. Ah. Perhaps that was the important thing. Um, we knew that our intercepts, the German messages we were writing down, they went to Station X, and that Station X did decoding. So uh, we had to be accurate as we possibly could. I found it quite a satisfying job, I must say. So was there any prospect of you ever going to Station X? Well, there was, because um, my godmother, who was married to somebody in the Foreign Office, wrote to my mother and said that a lot of the girls from the Foreign Office were going to work at a place in the country called Bletchley Park. And... Uh, it would be so nice if uh, Pat would go and work there as a secretary because she would be with a, a crowd of jolly girls. Well, as I had grown up in the country and really enjoyed being in London and places like that, the last thing I wanted to do was to be stuck with a crowd of foreign office secretaries in some place in the home counties. So I went to the nearest telegraph office and wrote one out which started, hate crowds, jolly girls, to send to my mother. And the nice man in the telegraph office said, oh, I hate crowds of jolly girls too. So he <laughs> thoroughly endorsed my message. And I did not go to Bletchley Park. So 1945, you're 22, the war is coming to an end. Can you remember the end of the war? Remember? Yes, because I think a bunch of us, we must have been stationed somewhere outside London because we went up to London and we all went to the palace. Oh, for VE Day. For on VE Day. Yeah. I suppose shouted at the royal family to come out or whatever. Anyway, they did. But what we really wanted was VJ Day because our father was prisoner of war in the Far East. Gosh, when did he become prisoner of war? My goodness. Well, his regiment went out by ship to Malaya. He and all his regiment and other regiments were all taken prisoner. And when did you hear that he'd been captured? How did, how did you hear? I think my mother would have heard from the war office. And how did she cope? Was she stoical? And were you stoical? She was wonderful. Were you a religious person? Did you say your prayers? Did you pray well, for his release? We were brought up very much, go to church every Sunday and say prayers 
morning and night. I'm sure we all prayed well for his survival and release because very bad news used to come out of the Far East about prisoners sort of having to work and not having enough to eat and all that. They were terrible stories, weren't they? But he was camp commandant, and I think he managed to have quite good relations with some of the Japanese officers because he did manage to get them to uh, let him have a small herd of cattle so the troops could occasionally have some beef uh, because they were all having an all-rice diet was not really giving them the strength to do the work they were having to do. So on VJ Day, when the victory over Japan was declared, that was when there was real celebration in your family. That's exactly right. And can you remember that moment? Yes, I think I was in London because I joined in the celebrations that went on. I knew, you know, that was what my mother had been wanting for all through the war, really, Mm. and what we all wanted, that we would see our father again. Paint us a picture. You're now 23, footloose, fancy-free. Where are you going to base yourself after the war? Yes. What's your life going to be? I'd had my 21st birthday at now Dover, and we did have a party, although it was only just after D-Day. Uh, most of the troops had gone abroad, but we had enough friends, and the RAF kindly flew over to Dublin, bought champagne and brought it back for me. Good grief. So Is that the sort of thing that was going on just after D-Day? Well, so, yes. Some chaps you knew in the RAF said, we'll go to Dublin, we'll get you some champagne. Mm. But how marvellous. Because you couldn't get it in England, really. Well, but they brought that back and... You have to ex- explain this. You must have been a most charming and attractive person that you persuaded these well, young men to fly to Dublin for you to bring back champagne I think they for were your delighted. 21st. I think they loved having a day or two in Dublin, actually. But, you know, yes, it's quite remarkable that they could just do that in yes. their RAF planes, <laughs> bring back the champagne. Well, it was good for morale. <laughs> yes. And who was at the party? Oh, well, first? it was at this station, Abbot's Cliff, mm-hmm. now between Dover and folks. Anyway, um, those local soldiers we knew hadn't yet gone to Europe. Rather a lot of them went just before, as it was June... 19, what would it have been? I was born in 1923. So we 20, 44. 44, yes. Yeah. D-Day. Yeah. They, they had gone over to Normandy, but there weren't quite enough people left to have a good party. We did. Can you remember the first time you heard about a casualty, somebody who died, who you had known? Um, I don't remember exactly. I don't think... Um, no, I, I don't remember individual deaths so you, somehow. You Perhaps t- you put them out of your mind. Yes. You turn 21. You don't come out. You're not a debutante. Um, no. Because they revived that after the war, didn't they? Although um, at one time when I was stationed in London, Aunt Marjorie, who was very keen on social affairs, um put me down to go to Sunday afternoon tea dances at Grosvenor House, which was mainly to entertain the Americans. Um, 
who by then were, as our troops said, overpaid, oversexed and over here. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and they went to these tea dances at Grosvenor House and we had to go and dance with them. And the Americans very kindly used to send parcels of women's dresses and things um, for the poor blitzed uh, women of London. And our aunt was on a committee that sort of uh, did the arranging of getting these out, except she always gave her nieces and cousins first choice, <laughs> which I was very embarrassed about. On the other hand, I couldn't very well offend Aunt Marjorie by saying, no, I don't want any part of this. So I did acquire a few... American dresses to go to tea dances, but and I kept it down as much as I could. Do the uh, Americans behave themselves with you? I hope so. Oh, very much, yes. Good. Oh, the Sunday tea dances are very sedate at Grosvenor House. So wh when did your love life take off after the war? Um, did it? Um, or oh, did it, yes. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it never did. Did I have a serious love life? I'm trying to think what I was doing after the war. Um, I went to Norway, I think, because Uncle Lawrence was the ambassador and he'd got to find a staff for Oslo. So I became the assistant to Miss Bing, the archivist. I was quite keen on going because I, I think it was the autumn and I knew there'd be winter skiing and it seemed a good idea. Clearly you were a clever girl. Someone who is reading Sir Walter Scott, age five, is a bit of a brain box. Did you think about going to university? In our family, the boys went to university. And the women didn't. And my brother went to Oxford. But I can't remember who it was who persuaded my parents. I think it was when I was in Oslo, um, the consul's son, Jack Eyre, was at St Andrews, and that the fees were something like £21 a year. And um, he said, surely even your family would consider you going to St Andrews. Um, and I said, well, I could pay for that. And so I resigned from Oslo and came back to, and applied to St Andrews and went there that autumn. And that actually changed your life, didn't it? starting at I St think Andrews. It did, yeah. really. But people now don't realise how unusual it was for women to go to university at all. I imagine you were one of quite a small number of girls at St Andrews when you arrived. Yes, we were still very much in a minority. What did you study? Basically English, with subsidiary French, I think. English involved learning Anglo-Saxon, which I've never found very useful, <laughs> not having met an Anglo-Saxon yet. <laughs> nice. So you got these, you got one degree, and then you got another degree. You went and went. I got a degree at St Andrews, yeah. and luckily it was a first. So congratulations! They gave me a scholarship, or the money for a scholarship to go to Oxford, and then I got an. English-speaking union exchange year at Harvard Graduate School, which I was very thrilled about. 
Did you feel that women, girls, we're now talking about the uh, late 40s, early 50s, were given parity with with men? I don't remember feeling any great problem. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't want to go into a teaching career. I wanted to be a journalist. And so, uh, you know, there never seemed to be any problem much. Your Aunt Marjorie, who clearly was aspirational for the family, she would have wanted you to be presented at court. Did, did she try and ensure that you had your place in society, Aunt Marjorie? She, she did manage to bring off this idea of Jean and me being presented at court. Mm. Um, it was the year of the Festival of Britain. Oh, so it was after the war. 1950, so, that would have been. Yes, yeah. it was quite late. So, 27. 26, 27. Yes. Was I? Yeah. I know it was the year of my finals at St Andrews because, of course, I had to wait to go there after the war mm. and after the Rens and Norway and everything. Um, anyway, you can't apparently refuse if you've applied to go and go to a, a royal drawing room. Uh, you must uh, go. So this invitation came to my dismay in my finals year at St Andrews, and I was absolutely terrified it would be in the middle of the finals exams and all my four years' work would have been for nothing. Um, but luckily, because it was the year of the Festival of Britain, they brought the drawing rooms forward to March, and so I did go by train from St Andrews to London and go and make my curtsy at Buckingham Palace. And these events were called drawing rooms, and essentially you were invited by the king to be presented to him in, in the drawing room. That's yes, I think it was the queen we were rallying. Well, the king and the queen, we were making and, our curtsies to. And they were both there. This is King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, who we later think of as the Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. That was it. And he was sitting on a chair at one side, looking, I thought, very pale and very tired. And he died quite soon after that. Mm. But the queen was the one you made your curtsy to. Oh. And the tricky bit was then getting out of the room without turning your back on the Queen. So you had to sort of sidle out um, to the door that led to where you got the tea. Um, sort of semi-backwards. You, you backed away from Her Majesty. My other terror was that I was going to catch the heel of a shoe in my hem and be unable to rise from the curtsy. But I just managed to avoid all well these. Done. And was it a proper low curtsy? Yes. Um, I don't quite remember how we learned. We did learn how to do curses, which... It's an important skill. I was told by one of uh, Elizabeth II's queries that when Mrs Thatcher first became Prime Minister, she went to have an audience of Elizabeth II, and she turned up, and the equerry said as he was walking her to meet the Queen, are you comfortable with the curtsy, Prime Minister? And she said, oh, yes, I, I, I practice it. And they got into the presence of the Queen, and Mrs. Thatcher did a wonderful, low curtsy, magnificent, uh, and then stayed down there. She found she couldn't get up. 
<laughs> and the equerry took went came to one side, and realizing what was happening, the queen came to the other side, and they had to hoist Mrs. Yeah. Thatcher up. Uh, and then, as they oh. were leaving, um, the equerry said, should, "Should we practice it a couple of times before next week?" Uh, and they did. So you did very well. Yes. Well, we did, and I didn't catch my heel on my hammer as I expected. And I know this this tradition ended, I think, at the end of the 1950s, but what was the purpose of this being presented to the King and Queen? Well, after that, um, London hostesses would invite you to balls and things like that. Um, And if you went abroad, you were expected to go to, if there was a royal family, go to their palace and uh, sign your name. And they would then invite you to any social events. But essentially, the idea was for the right kind of girls to meet the right kind of chaps. It was that. That was essentially what it was about. Yes. But that didn't happen for you. You didn't do then a season. Your your mother didn't arrange well, dances I, and things. I did meet the right chap later, but it wasn't anything to do with having cursed at Buckingham yeah. Palace. And was he the first, because we're collecting firsts here, was he the first really right chap for you when um, you did meet him? I think he probably was. Um, and what was there about him that made you think, this is the one? Um, well, he was a journalist and a good journalist. I was working as journalist myself at the time. We were both in Manchester, but we both later went to London. And he was very witty and funny and, you know, um, good company. So. I enjoyed being with him, and so did other people. So uh, I was very glad that worked out. You broke out into television. I'm collecting first, but I have to, because your story is so intriguing, I have to depart from our normal tram lines. You you broke into television. Uh, You went to Granada, which, of course, was up in the north. You're one of the first people to have known Tony Warren. Oh, yes. Now, how did you know him, and what was the first that he created? Well, Tony and I had offices on the same floor of Granada, and he used to come into my office quite often and talk about what he was writing. But I want to hear that you and he cooked up Coronation Street between you. Well, I think he'd really already got it well worked out because he used to read me bits of script with, you know, shoppers and people in them and... I think when he first described his idea for Coronation Street, I do remember saying, you know, I don't think Granada would ever get it networked outside Manchester, do you? And he wasn't sure whether they would, but of course they did. And it's still with us. Yes. Yours is an extraordinary story, and you've lived a long time, and we've been talking a long time. I want to ask you finally about your first principles what it is you think that has helped you to live so long and clearly to live a good life and, I get the impression, a happy life. What is your philosophy? Well, I think a lot of it is having had a very happy and stable childhood. Um, I think we had a very good moral upbringing from our mother. Um, anyway, I don't think I've ever done anything very wicked. Um, and uh, were rather encouraged if you were offered something. 
uh, have a go, you know, see if you can manage it. Um, and I think that was a useful sort of start. Have a go. That's a very good philosophy of life. I like that. Finally, you've lived a hundred years, which is a long time. Do you think it's a kinder, better world a hundred years on? I, I'm not sure that it is particularly. Um, I think we were much more in families when I was young and families very much supported each other. I think these days perhaps we get rather separated. I think um, some ways the world's got fairer. I think we're kinder to animals, which is very important. I hope we are. And, uh, of course, communication's totally different because uh, we had a telephone at home, but uh, that was about it. I think the world's just as interesting, really. I think we could still do better, perhaps after my time they will. Well, I hope your time will be a little bit longer. So many happy returns, I say to you, on your 100th. It's fantastic and lovely talking to you. And I shall be, in my head, I'm picturing you playing pretends back in the 1920s in a slightly more (laughs) idyllic countryside. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. listening to Pat. I loved meeting her. A little bit different from our usual rosebud, and we've got something very, very special coming up. So make sure you join us on Friday for what will be our Christmas special. And if you've enjoyed this episode, well, there are quite a few in the back catalogue, so whoever you want to listen to, whether it's, you know, Dame Judy Dench, uh, Lady Glen Connor, Joanna Lumley, they're all lining up to, I hope, surprise and interest and stimulate you over the holiday season. The holiday season. That's what they've taken to calling Christmas nowadays. Oh dear, what a world. <laughs>